Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, as we continue from our year-long study of Matthew, Pastor Tierra will take us on location to the city that was so central to Jesus' ministry here on earth. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tierra. Um, <laughs> we are hopping back into a micro-series that we began last week, but um, all of these micro-series are part of our year-long exploration of the book of Matthew. And we're spending a year in the book of Matthew. We're only a couple months in. We're journeying through the life of Jesus as told by the most unlikely disciple, a disciple named Matthew, who, because we're moving so slowly through the book of Matthew, we have not yet met him. We will meet Matthew in a couple of weeks, but we've not met Matthew yet. Um, but for several weeks, we came to know Jesus through um, the most brilliant teaching ever taught. Uh, we explored the Sermon on on the Mount in which Jesus teaches a number. He opens up the scriptures to his disciples in a new way. Um, and then last week, things took a little bit of a turn, literally or figuratively, or maybe some mashup of both literally and figuratively, the sea turns on the disciples. The Sea of Galilee, um, a huge storm like emerges out of the Sea of Galilee, almost completely overtakes the disciples, uh, turns on the disciples, and then Jesus um, calms the storm that threatens to overtake them, and they see Jesus in a completely new way. I imagine life um, feels like this sometimes, like you're either surviving the storm and trying to catch your breath in the storm, or you're on the other side of the storm, and you're like, like it's, we call it the, uh, the quiet after the storm, and you're feeling the quiet after the storm, and maybe you're trying to catch your breath there too. But in any case, the storms that we experience affect us. Uh, they affect us, and not always in ways that we might expect. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was hanging out with some friends, full disclosure, it was Rob and Shanna, um, after service one Sunday, and uh, we got to the part in the conversation where we talked about the shows that we're watching, and I admitted that um, I've been really into this show, Homeland. Um, it's about eight seasons long. Um, it's featuring Claire Danes, um, Mandy Patinkin, um, Damian Lewis. I only know that because his name's on the screen. <laughs> um, but one, not recommending the show. Not recommending the show. As your pastor, I am not recommending the show. Am I recommending the show? No. Okay. So, <laughs> so anyway, really interesting show. Really, um, really intense. It's like 45 minutes per episode. You are sitting on the edge of your seat all 45 of those minutes. Um, but then I admitted, well, I actually haven't watched the show since like last summer. Um, I only got to the end of the fourth season. There's like nine seasons and I kind of tapped out. And then I, I decided to watch a couple other things. So then we started talking about the way that TV shows are made these days. Not only has like the time frame of a TV show from like 22 minutes to something like 45, that has shifted, but also the storylines have shifted. Like you've noticed, like Breaking Bad, like you could have watched Breaking Bad in an entire like weekend. I have not seen Breaking Bad, but you could have watched it in an entire weekend from what I hear from people. Really rich storyline, really deep character development, um, just unbelievably suspenseful, um, really surprising plot twists throughout the show. Uh, shows like Game of Thrones, which I've also not seen, The Americans, um, Jack Ryan, Reacher, um, the new Reacher with the person who's the appropriate height and size. <laughs> uh, so... 
Um, God bless Tom Cruise. He's like my height. But uh, <laughs> So we've gotten so much better at storytelling in the last several years. Um, and yet, there's another kind of show that is emerging. There's a new genre of show. It's not really new. We've actually known about the genre of TV show for a really long time. And I remember, in fact, seven years ago, I was sitting in a, a dinner party with, at this point, something like two college presidents and a bunch of professors with PhDs, and me and the only other administrator at this dinner party are trying to convince all these really smart people that this genre of show exists, and they didn't believe us. And then, lo and behold, several years later, the research is out. Um, there's a new kind of show that's been around all along. It's called a comfort show. Any of you heard of a comfort show? No? Maybe you've experienced a comfort show. Maybe you've experienced before and you're not used to calling it that. Um, a comfort show is a show, and it can, a movie can fall into this category too, but a comfort show is a show that you've probably seen a million times. You've watched the whole, like you've watched the entire series, all, you know, five, six, eight, um, if it's Law and Order, it's like 20 seasons of a show. You've seen all of them back to back. You know it so well, um, and yet at the end of a long day or the end of a long week, you come home, the chores are done. If you've got kids, the kids are in bed, and you sit down and you turn to Netflix and you're like, do I watch that new, do, we, do I watch the prequel to Game of Thrones? No, Law and Order. <laughs> Law and Order, that's the show I'm gonna watch. Or, or maybe Friends, like that's my, my comfort show. Law and Order, Friends is my comfort show. Uh, or maybe, maybe Frasier, like I'll go back to Frasier. Um, now I am apparently not the only person who does this. Um, apparently tons of people do it and I've looked at some lists and different shows, some of your shows might be on there. Gilmore Girls uh, is on that list. Uh, Golden Girls is on that list. Um, New Girl is on that list. Pretty much any show with girl in the title is on that list. <laughs> But also Boy, uh, Boy Meets World, like everybody loves when Mr. Feeney tells you that everything's going to be okay at the end of the day, right? Like Boy Meets World is on that, on that list. Uh, the Office, from some, for some of you, like that's the show that you've binged a million times. You know the episodes like the back of your hand. Um, Arrested Development, not one I've seen, but a ton of other people have seen this one, and it's, this is their go-to show. Some of you, and I've talked to you about this, your throwback show is The West Wing. How many of you, like, The West Wing is your thing? I, I think that show is older than me. <laughs> so West Wing is on that list. Uh, Bones uh, is one of my favorites, too. It's just such a wholesome, like, crime drama. Um, and then Blue Bloods is emerging um, onto the comfort show list. How many of you have seen Blue Bloods before? Yeah, I'm going to guess. I did this in the first service, too. I'm going to guess that one of your favorite scenes in that whole show is what? Family dinner, right? Yeah, yeah. I, and that actually tells us a little bit of why we like shows like this. Um, every, if you haven't seen the show, In Blue Bloods, every, every week there's a family dinner, and all of the kids get together at mom and dad's house. Mom is deceased, but the dad is um, still around, and grandpa. And they sit down to dinner together, and before they have dinner, they say a prayer together. Um, and then they catch up on their day, they catch up on their week, they talk about the things that are pressing in on their family. Um, and that tells us something about why we watch shows like this. Because you watch a show like Blue Bloods, and they sit down to dinner, and it teleports you back to a time in your life when things were simple. When mom and dad were in charge, and the only thing you had to do was just show up at dinner, goof off at the table and make noises in your milk, right? Like that's all you had to do. These shows take us back to a time that's more comforting than maybe the times that we are experiencing. We like these shows, and Law and & Order is a prime example of this because they are so predictable. You can set your watch by an episode of Law and & Order. You know exactly how it's gonna go, even if you've never seen the episode before. 
You know the bad guy or gal is going to get caught. You know they're going to go to trial. And if they happen to get off, like found not guilty, there's usually someone waiting on the courthouse steps for them. Like that's how every episode of Law and Order goes, right? And there's something about the predictability. There's something about how formulaic it is that is actually comforting to us. We don't want the prequel to Game of Thrones. At least we do. It's in our queue. We'll watch it. But what we actually want is just for Mr. Feeney. We want the reboot of Boy Meets World. We want Mr. Feeney to come tell us that everything is going to be fine. My guess is that many of us do this even if we don't know that we're doing it. And psychologists are now noticing that we do this. In fact, psychologists will say there's nothing wrong with your comfort show. You can binge watch Law & Order as much as you want. Um, up to a point, though, because what they're also saying is that there's a way that we can get stuck in the comfort show. Um, we can start to prefer the nostalgia and sometimes even at the risk of experiencing new things or new stories. My guess is that after surviving a storm that nearly kills them, the disciples would prefer the comforting, soothing theme music of Law and Order. They would prefer to hear Rose say that one thing to Blanche again. They would prefer the comfort show, the ones that we go back to ourselves. But that's not exactly what they encounter when they make it ashore. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to pick up in verse 28. Um, and it's only about six verses, so we're actually going to read the whole story in one sitting. So it begins this way. When Jesus arrived at the other side of the, in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. And they were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. And the demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. And so they came out and they went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. And those tending the pigs ran off and went into the town and reported all of this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And then the whole town went out to meet Jesus and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their town. So this is a very odd little story, um, and it is also a very familiar story. In fact, um, you could find this story in three of the four Gospels. It is also written in Mark. It is also written in Luke. Uh, but there's a couple of differences between this, the ways that the stories are, are told. Uh, in Matthew's Gospel, the one that we're reading from, or sorry, both Mark and Luke say that this story happens in a place called Gerasa. Let me hear you say Gerasa. Gerasa, on the map... Um, Garasa on the map is, is, is south of the Sea of Galilee and almost like it's just above Philadelphia. Uh, so they say it happens in Garasa, but Matthew says it happens in Gadara. Let me hear you say Gadara. Now they sound alike, but they're not the same city. Gadara is actually just above Pella, just above Pella, um, a little closer to the Sea of Galilee. Uh, so what's with the discrepancy? What's with the discrepancy? Uh, is it possible that, that as Matthew is like typing out the Gospel of Matthew that he kind of, his finger slips and he hits a D instead of an S? Uh, or, or is there something else happening here? Uh, so some scholars think that Mark and Luke named Garasa um, because it's a really popular city in this region. A really popular city in this region. It would be like you go to another state or you go to another country and you say, um, I'm from Michigan. And then they try to figure out where you live based on your relationship to what city in Michigan? 
Detroit. Yeah, they try to track where you're from based on how close your city is to Detroit. Uh, Or you're from Chicago, or you're from Illinois, but people try to track where you are in Illinois from your distance in relation to Chicago. Uh, So this is a really prominent city in the area, one of the most prominent cities in the area. It's very likely that they're just simply describing what happens in this story in relation to that prominent city. Now, Gadara is the city that Matthew names, and it's entirely possible that Matthew names Gadara because it is, in fact, a little bit closer to the Sea of Galilee. Um, It is also a prominent city in the area, maybe not as prominent as Gerasa, um, but it's, it's prominent and it's a little bit closer to the Sea of Galilee. Um, Some scholars think that the reason Matthew lists Gadara is because he's trying to jog the memories of his uh, Jewish readers. Uh, They would have heard Gadara, and they would have remembered that there are hot springs in Gadara. In fact, they're called um, Hamat Gadara, Uh, Hamat Gadara, the hot springs of Gadara. Uh, And those hot springs, I think the concentration of sulfur is almost 5%, which means that the, like, being in those hot springs would actually like heal. You could treat like skin diseases using that water, using those hot springs. Uh, so some people think that Matthew is trying to account for why there are people in this area who need to be healed. Um, but because Gadara is also pretty far away from the Sea of Galilee, and given the way the story begins and plays out, some people recently said that that actually can't quite be where it is either. Like something has to be, so it has to be a little bit closer. And so um, the consensus that is emerging is that the story actually takes place right on the Sea of Galilee at Hippos or Hippos or um, Susita. That there, today there is a beach there, um, the Susita Beach. Uh, so right on the Sea of Galilee. I mean, in fact, next slide. This is a picture from Susita. Uh, these are some ruins that they've like been excavating, and the city itself has been built around this. You can actually see the lake from here. You see why that might be a good option for this story taking place there. Um, nonetheless, all of these all of these cities um, are are in the same region. What they're referencing is the region of Gerasa or the region of Gadara, um, or more importantly, the Decapolis. Um, all three of these cities are a part of the Decapolis. Uh, Decapolis is in 10 cities, Deca, Polis, uh, 10 cities. Uh, these are 10 cities that are known for uh, known for um, their association with Hellenism or, um, or um, Greek culture um, and practice. Um, Pliny, uh, when he reports on these cities, uh, he says that there's something like 10 of these, and he kind of admits that there's a little bit of a discrepancy. People are always trying to figure out exactly which 10 cities are a part of the 10 cities. Uh, and part of the reason for that discrepancy is because it didn't start off as 10 cities. It started as like 30-something. And by the time we get to the first century, there's 10. There's 10 of these cities, but there's dozens of these cities throughout this, this region. Uh, and as you might suspect, there's a story behind that. Uh, there's a really interesting story behind that. And it goes back, um, to, goes back to the period of a guy named Alexander the Great. Uh, so I'm not going to walk through the entire history of Israel, but if you remember, just to kind of keep the date straight in your head, Assyria takes over the northern kingdom. And then after that, the Babylonians take the southern kingdom. And then after after the Babylonians, the Persians take over the entirety of the ancient Near East. And then after the Persians, there's a guy named Alexander the Great. Perfect. So we'll skip that next slide. 
and then we'll go right to the mosaic. There we go. Uh, <laughs> just saved you like 15 minutes there. So, uh, <laughs> so Alexander the Great uh, comes along in 334 BC, uh, and he becomes um, he becomes the king of Macedonia at the age of 20. It's a little bit like the Beyonce effect. Like at age 20, he is already the leader of the next uh, major power of the ancient Near East, and he spends his entire adult career making. Uh, Macedonia, making the Greek Empire the dominant empire in the ancient Near East. Um, and then at the age of 32, he, like, he goes home from war and he dies. Um, super young, dies super young, which you have to admit, pretty impressive run. Like at 32, I was still trying to figure out how to like fold a fitted sheet, and he's like starting an empire. <laughs> but, um, so nonetheless, the Greek Empire is divided at that point between his generals. Uh, and that is, is not the end of their intrusion in Judah. It's only the beginning, uh, largely because Judah, like the land of God's people, is in such a strategic spot. Um, I forgot to include a bigger map so that you could see it. It's sitting between all of these major empires. Um, it's the place that they travel through. Um, there's unbelievably lucrative like spice routes and trade routes. There's ports that they can have access to. Um, it is the land between, and it's the place that everyone wants. And so even though Alexander the Great dies, um, even though his generals are kind of dividing up this area, they still want strategic access to Judea, and so they continue to fight over it. So one, I just want to say this time of period is probably my favorite. Um, and I know we kind of look back to like all the more prominent stories in the Old Testament, the, the story of David and the story of Solomon. And those stories play a huge role in what we eventually see in the first century. But this time period when the people have been basically exiled from their land, um, and even though some of them were like, able to come back, I mean, the temple destroyed and rebuilt, um, so much of what Jesus is reacting to, so much of what Jesus is, is responding to, sometimes placing himself in continuity with and agreeing with, sometimes resisting outright, it emerges during this time period. Uh, so it's this tangled mess. There's some really stuff. And then there's also some really, really amazing stuff that happens too. Um, and some of that is actually concentrated in this period when Alexander the Great um, has this really great idea that he will infuse something called Hellenism uh, into the ancient Near East because his way of uniting such a vast empire is by having people basically share a culture. Um, if you can share a culture, if you're reading the same things, if you're speaking the same language, if you're, if you're cross-pollinating the same ideas, worshiping the same gods, you will be a unit a, or a united empire, um, and that will make it easier to rule. And so Hellenism emerges um, as this really fascinating, and there's still remnants of this that we see. Uh, you've got a common language, uh, so Koine Greek. Um, Koine Greek emerges as this common Greek that everyone learns. Uh, the reason that we're able to pick up um, basically an entirely Greek New Testament is because somewhere along the line, uh, a guy named Alexander the Great said everyone should speak and write the same language, and so this is the language that everybody taught, Koine Greek, the language that our New Testament comes to us in. Uh, but not just language, um, there's also this really fascinating little detail of a calendar. Um, up until Alexander the Great, everyone's calendars were based on their land and their deities. So it'd be like Canada has their own calendar, and then, well, they sort of do with Canadian Thanksgiving, but Canada has its own calendar, and America has its own calendar, and um, Hungary has its own calendar, and the Netherlands have their own calendar. And what Alexander the Great essentially said was, how about we're all on the same calendar, and we all mark and record events on the same calendar? So for the first time, everyone's talking across the same calendar. And he also contributes something called the polis, or the city, 
the city um, is what emerges, these, these centers of Hellenism that get infused into the rest of ancient Greek or ancient Near East. Uh, and the polis has a Greek political system. Um, so politics are run like um, they would be run in Alexander's hometown. In addition to a Greek political system, uh, cultural institutions like academies where people would learn uh, the language and literature and philosophy, uh, theaters where you would go to be entertained, but in those theaters, they're kind of infusing cultural values of, of, um, of Greek culture. Uh, gymnasiums, um, Reverend Tim has talked about gymnasiums before, these places where you go to work, not only your mind, like you actually, you can read a book in the gym um, and you can, um, on your little stair climber, but you can also, you're also physically working your body in that place. Uh, and there are temples that are built to Greek gods. Uh, but because ancient cultures are highly religious, you're not just worshiping Greek gods in the temple. They're infused throughout all of the cultural institutions. And so you go to the gym, and you can worship gods there, pagan gods there. You go to the academy. You go to a symposia. Uh, you're just trying to go listen to an interesting speaker, but the pagan gods are kind of interwoven into every aspect of the culture that you are encountering, which you might suspect the Judaism does not mesh well with Hellenism because the Jews believe that there's only one God, and his name is Yahweh and that there's not a pantheon of gods that are interwoven into all of the, the cultural institutions that the Greeks are trying to infuse into all of these cities all over the ancient Near East, including, including in Judea. And so there are clashes all over the place, including in the gymnasiums, uh, which, like I said before, are dedicated to Greek gods. Uh, there's something that you notice pretty easily in a gymnasium because everyone's working out in the nude. This is why we wear leggings to the gym now. But, uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, they had this bright idea to work out in the nude. And circumcision becomes pretty obvious when you're working out in the nude at a gym. Uh, and to the Jews, circumcision is this sign of their covenant with God. It's a sign of God's faithfulness to them. It's a sign of their dedication and their devotion to Yahweh. But to the Greeks, circumcision is barbaric mutilation. And so there's clashes. You get picked on at the gym when you show up and you're circumcised. Uh, but not only clashes over, over um, circumcision, um, pederasty, this practice of an older male with a younger male in a sexual relationship, was also rampant, and you encounter that very often in gyms, public baths. Um, so there's some clashes in the gym. There's some major cultural clashes in the gym. Uh, but not just in the gym, in the temple as well. Uh, there are clashes in the temple. Uh, so all of this changing of empires, this weird game of thrones that happens uh, in the ancient Near East around this time, uh, it changes the makeup of Israel's political system. There are no more kings. The Davidic dynasty goes away. There are no more kings. I mean, in fact, if you are the ruler of a dynasty, if you are the ruler of an empire and you're trying to unite your empire, you don't want kings. You don't even want people pretending to be kings in all these places. And so the next highest role in, the, um, in Judea is the chief priest's office. Uh, the role of the chief priest, the role of the chief pastor in Judea becomes a political office. Um, it becomes a political office. Um, and what that looks like um, is that the chief priest becomes almost like a, a vice regent of sorts. Uh, they collect the taxes that will eventually get sent to the Greek empire. Uh, they adjudicate um, local um, conflicts between people. So they're kind of like a judge too. Um, and they also pray on behalf of the empire, which you might be thinking, 
that's not so bad. Like, that's okay. Like, we could live with that. Um, except it's not a one-way relationship. Uh, it's not a one-way relationship. It's a two-way relationship. As in, not only does the priest kind of offer things on behalf of the Jews back to the Greek empire, but also the priest is the person through whom, through whom the Greeks infuse their culture with all of its stuff the gods, the gymnasium, the, like all of it, into Judea, into the city. They would work with these local indigenous priests to infuse Hellenism into existing cities. Now, you might imagine that doesn't go so well. <laughs> it doesn't go so well. And in fact, there's a major conflict, a major conflict, um, and we are familiar with that conflict because we, um, we know people who celebrate this holiday called what, Hanukkah. Anybody know Hanukkah? or you've heard of people celebrating Hanukkah. Uh, so essentially, Antiochus, uh, he is a Seleucid ruler, and he basically decides that the Jews are the last holdouts. They are the ones who are breaking up the empire. We cannot have them holding out. They have to worship all the other gods. Uh, and so he goes into the temple one day, and he basically sacrifices a pig to Zeus in the temple of God's people. Um, not only that, but he launches into this complete tirade targeting Jewish worship practices. Um, he's forcing people to break the law at fear, at like literally at the, at, at the expense of maybe they die if they don't do it. Um, to the point where at one point he's like force feeding people pork like in the, in the, in the city center. Uh, really terrible. Goes on for several years. A ton of people die. Um, it goes on for several years. And then finally, a guy named Judah the Hammer Maccabeus has had enough. Uh, he's had enough and he and his family basically cleanse the temple, rededicate the temple. Hanukkah actually marks the time when they rededicated the temple. Um, eight days of celebration of them rededicating the temple to Yahweh. But not just rededicating the temple. Uh, what starts is something like a hundred years, a hundred years of Judea essentially becoming its own independent state under the Maccabees. They hold down the fort for a hundred years, which is impressive. Uh, and not just impressive, um, it's impressive in a number of ways. Geographically, they, they managed to push back the boundaries of Judea um, even further than they had been in the days of David and Solomon. Uh, so geographically, they do really well. Politically, they do really well. They establish themselves as an independent state. Uh, they go to war with all forms of paganism, both milita militaristically, uh, but, also, but also spiritually and religiously. Uh, they develop and are able to kind of um, sustain almost like a pure, pure worship of Yahweh. That is what they're most concerned with. Um, that means no pagan gods. That means no pagan altars. They clear out all of it. Um, they make sure the people are actually like observing a pure faith and passing that on to their children. This goes on for a hundred years. Typically, we think back on this history and we're like, gosh, like, like the Jews are like almost like sitting ducks when all this is happening. But the story of the Maccabees actually is pretty impressive because what we see in them is this, like this unbelievable resistance to anything and everything that would be associated with Hellenistic culture. So... By the time we get to the first century, by the time we get to the first century, this goes on until Rome takes over. I, I will spare you the details of Rome taking over. But um, by the time we get to the first century, Rome is in charge. They've displaced the Greek Empire. Um, what's left of, the, of the, the, the dozens of cities, the Hellenistic cities that were founded by Alexander the Great and his, his successors, um, is the Decapolis. And these are places, the Decapolis is essentially highly concentrated 
Greek culture, um, Greek gods, uh, Greek language, Greek philosophy, Greek ideas, highly concentrated in those areas. People who, when the Romans took over, wanted to settle in a place that felt familiar, they went to these Hellenistic cities. They went to the Decapolis. But also Jews who converted to paganism, Jews who basically said, maybe the Hellenists are onto something, maybe we should just go ahead and do that. They also settled in the Decapolis, into these cities. And essentially, these cities become places that you if you are a good Jewish kid um, from a good Jewish family whose mom warned you as you left the house for the day, don't go to the Decapolis, you would not want to find yourself in the Decapolis. Uh, in fact, you wouldn't want to find yourself in the Decapolis, and you don't like the Decapolis. There's not even a part of you that wants to be there. Um, you don't want to find yourself there. Not only because it's hostile to your faith spiritually, but also because it might be physically hostile to you. There's a very antagonistic relationship between the Greeks and the Jews leading up to the first century, which makes you wonder, why on earth, why on earth would Jesus take his disciples there? Like, why on earth would, like, how, what did he say to the parents as they were signing permission slips, like, for the day? Like, like, why on earth would he take the disciples to this group of young, faithful Jewish boys um, to a place that was dead set on destroying their faith, uh, a place that, where they could be mocked or ridiculed or kidnapped or assaulted? Why on earth would he take them to such a dangerous place? But not just to a dangerous place. Uh, we read from Matthew uh, that when Jesus and his disciples step off the boat, they are immediately met, immediately met by two demon-possessed men. Two demon-possessed men. Um, I love how Wally Harrison from Walker Harbor puts it. Uh, they're met by the most interesting hospitality team in church history. Uh, <laughs> like the guys who are greeting them or opening the door for them are quite peculiar. And you've, you've been in situations like this. My guess is you've, you've traveled or maybe even here in, in West Michigan, you've come across some characters who are a little bit wow. Um, <laughs> um, I was in Seattle a couple of years ago. And um, I... I had gotten a recommendation for a coffee place. There's this uh, coffee place called Storyville. If you're ever in Seattle, you should go to Storyville. Um, and I, you know, my GPS, I'm like following it to Storyville. I have to park like really far away because I was looking for free parking because I hate paying for parking. And, uh, <laughs> and so I finally make it to the building that Storyville is in. Uh, and it's right across the street from the, um, not even a street, it's like literally you can see the fish market, like the famous fish market where they throw the fish. Yeah, it's right across the street from that. And, um, and so I'm making my way like around the building and I see a staircase and I'm about to head up the stairs into this coffee shop to have apparently the latte that's like the best latte ever. And um, I get to the steps and there's this older gentleman like sitting on the steps. And um, he's doing some version of like beatboxing, but like he's also swearing and like screaming as he's beatboxing and like waving his arms erratically. And, and I take one look at him, and I look back at my GPS, and I'm like, this can't be where the, <laughs> this can't be where the, the coffee shop is. <laughs> so I walk away, and I eventually run into a police officer, and I, I figure a police officer knows where coffee is, right? So I ask the police officer, like, where's the coffee shop? And he's like, oh, yeah, no, it's up on the second floor there. Just walk in and go all the way to the edge of the building. And um, so I come back, I'm like, brave, you're, like, you're from Michigan, you survive like negative 10 degree winters, you can do this. So, <laughs> so I go to where this guy is, is sitting and he's gone, he's gone. So I have free passage here. Um, but there's a woman also there, another woman there, and she's trying to convince her husband that there really was a guy on the steps, I'm not kidding. <laughs> he doesn't believe her, I had to like back her up. Uh, so, 
Nonetheless, this guy is kind of like that only, these two guys are kind of like that, but only worse. Um, And they don't go away. Um, The text says they were so violent that no one could pass that way. No one could pass that way, Uh, which leads me to believe um, that there is something like a standoff with these guys. Like there's two guys and they immediately identify that they're demon-possessed guys, which means the disciples are trying to get around them, but they can't. They're basically stuck. It's like the guys and the city that they're trying to go to and the water right behind them. They're literally stuck um, interacting with these guys and not just stuck with them in a culture war between the Greeks and the Jews, but they're physically, physically stuck. The text says that these men are kalepoi. Let me hear you say kalepoi. Kalepoi, it means violent, it means formidable, it means furious, uh, hard, difficult, or dangerous, but not just a little bit dangerous, they they are leon dangerous. Uh, Let me hear you say leon. Means exceedingly or very, or sometimes translated as so. Uh, These guys are very dangerous, they're exceedingly dangerous. Um, exceedingly dangerous. Last week, we studied the story of the disciples encountering a great storm that almost overtakes them, um, almost overtakes them, which sometimes is actually worse than the thing overtaking you. Like, have you almost been in a car accident? Like, isn't that scary? Like, you hit black ice and you're almost in the accident, but you managed to get control of the car. Or, or maybe you've almost been hit by a moving vehicle, or maybe someone you love has almost been hit by a moving vehicle. Um, Maybe you almost fell in the bathroom with all of those things that could do you damage in a bathroom. Uh, or maybe, maybe you, and this happened to me once, I was in a really old building uh, here in Michigan and I was waiting for the elevator and I was, I was kind of on my phone not paying attention and the doors opened I went to walk in um, and a person behind me grabbed my arm because the, the elevator actually wasn't there. Like I was gonna like walk right into nothing. Uh, so <laughs> those moments are scary, right? And you know how you feel when you're in those moments. Like your heart is racing, your hands are trembling. Something happens to your vision when you get really scared. Like it almost narrows, like it gets smaller. Uh, this is how the disciples are feeling coming off of this little random afternoon on the lake with Jesus, um, trembling, heart racing, some of them probably puking as they come off the boat and as they get ashore. But within minutes of surviving this storm, they walk right into not just a place, not just a situation, but people who are exceedingly dangerous. And then the demon-possessed men cry out, what do you want with us, son of God? They shout, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Did you catch that? They call Jesus the son of God. What do you want with us, son of God? Now, because we are familiar with the story, we've read the story so many times, we know how it plays out, and also because we use the title son of God for Jesus, we might miss this little detail that Matthew slips in. This is actually the first time that anyone has called Jesus the son of God in Matthew's gospel. This is the first time anyone has used that title in reference to Jesus. Not even the disciples have called him the son of God yet. And this should tell us that even the demons recognize that Jesus is not just a brilliant teacher. Jesus is not just a healer. Um, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who comes to restore creation. And to do that, the demons know, to do that, he must And he will destroy, he will completely vanquish every ounce of evil, sin, and death from creation. And that terrifies the demons. That terrifies them because they know what's coming. 
They know what's coming. They use this word. Uh, I'm not even going to say the Greek word. Actually, we're going to skip that next slide and go right to the next Matthew 8 slide. I'm not even going to say the word, but a thousand Harbor Church's points if you can say the word to one of the pastors on staff. Uh, and those points by nothing um, except cool points. So, <laughs> um, so this word means to torture or torment. And it also means to subject to judgment. It means to put to a test. It means to prove. It's a loaded word. Like, it's a very, very, very loaded word. Uh, it's in the semantic field, as in, like, you look in the lexicon and you find this word. Right next to it is the word for king um, and also for kingdom um, in the Greek. Uh, so it's sitting, it's kind of pointing to, the demons are pointing to the role that Jesus, the Son of God, is playing in creation, that Jesus, the Son of God, is the king over the cosmos, that he is putting all things right, and he's going to vanquish, vanquish things that do not belong in his kingdom, like sin, like evil, like death. He's going to judge, which don't take that in like the like weird way that sometimes we take that. Judge means to separate. Jesus is going to separate sin and evil and death from his creation, but not in the way that you might think. Not in the way that you might think. Um, the Christian tradition has often talked about sin and evil as something like a parasite. Something like a parasite. So there's God's very good creation, uh, and that includes you, like you and me. Like we're a part of God's very good creation. Uh, and there is a God who loves us and is sustaining the goodness that is within us and sustaining the goodness that is in creation. But sin and evil and death enter the world, and they're like a parasite. Like it's like a tick. Um, it's like a tick. It looks small. It looks like it's not that big of a deal, but it can do a lot of damage. A tick can do a lot of damage to you. If anyone has ever been bitten by a tick or you didn't discover it in time, ticks can do a lot of damage. Uh, a lesser, less serious example would be stink bugs. Um, apparently, <laughs> like stink bugs, like they're not great. They're a pest. We don't want stink bugs. They do damage. Um, that is what sin and evil and death does to God's very good creation. Um, it's kind of like, I mean, years ago, me and some people were kind of working through um, a way to teach through sexuality on a college campus and to kind of bring people into this idea that like God created a sexual good and there is something that he wanted um, for creation in terms of sexuality. Um, and then there's all these things that creep in, um, things like pornography. Pornography is parasitic on the sexual good that God created. It's parasitic. It destroys it. It diminishes it. It distorts it. Um, it corrodes it. It's like rust on a boat or on a car. Like it's corrosive. It has a corrosive effect on the very good thing that is created, which is the reason why, which is the reason why um, it looks like creation and even us, even our souls, are just like this tangled mess. Jesus does this parable of like the wheat and the weeds, like, like they're a tangled mess. They're so interwoven, they're so tangled that you can't even really tell them apart, let alone pull them apart, which is why Jesus tells us not to judge. We are not the people who judge. God is. And why is God the person who judges? Because God has the eyesight and he has the insight to be able to pull those apart without destroying you without destroying creation, without completely destroying it. He can pull things apart in a way that brings restoration and life. And so Jesus is often referred to throughout church history as a great physician. And this is not just because he heals bodies or he puts bones back or um, it's not just because he takes away skin diseases. Jesus is called a great physician because they didn't have the language to describe what a surgeon does. 
Jesus is a great physician because he goes in with unbelievable precision, precision and he literally extracts the thing that's corrosive. He extracts the cancer, that is sin, that is evil, that is death, out of us and out of creation. He pulls it out in a way that doesn't destroy you, but actually restores you to your original goodness, your original truth, your original beauty. That is not an easy process, which is why it probably feels a little bit like the demons say torture and torment. Um, that is not an easy process. Sometimes it's a little bit terrifying. That's the reason why the demons refer to Jesus as almost like a judge, like Jesus is going to separate some things and it's going to be painful. And yet, when Jesus tells us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, that is precisely what he's getting at. He's getting at this process of separating the bad from the good, but doing so in a way that doesn't destroy, but actually restores And the demons know that this is the work that Christ will complete. And his presence on earth in the first century means it's already started and the clock is already ticking for them. So the demons ask Jesus to allow them to go into the pigs and he does and and the pigs run off the cliff into the lake where they drown. Uh, But then the people who, the townspeople return, the townspeople return and they find their flock of pigs completely gone, like pig farm, completely gone. Um, But then they also find these two guys, um, and the people who ran to tell them what happened told them about the two guys who have been healed by Jesus. There are these two demon-possessed guys, and they got healed by Jesus, and the pigs are gone, and the townspeople, all the townspeople come over, and they see Jesus, they meet Jesus, and they hear about what he does. They hear about these two things that happen as a result of Jesus' activity in their land, and they plead with him. The text says they beg him, they beg him to leave They beg him to leave their region. Rather than asking Jesus to stay and presumably continue healing people throughout their land, they ask him to leave. They would rather have violent, demon-possessed men running amok in their city than Jesus, the Messiah, bringing healing and restoration. Like, take that in for a second because it is astounding. It is the last word in this particular part of the scripture, so it's what Matthew wants us to focus in on. Who would encounter the Son of God and tell him to go? Who would encounter evidence of a miracle in their midst and tell the person who performed it to leave? Who would do that? Who would refuse God in the flesh? And perhaps the bigger question is, why? Why? Why would they refuse God in the flesh? My guess is because it cost them something. It costs them something that maybe they don't want to lose, maybe something they don't want to pay. Nonetheless, it costs them something. For them, it's a pig farm. It costs them their pig farm. Maybe it puts a dent in their wallets. It costs them their pig farm. For us, it might be something entirely different. I know what it is for me. I know the cost that I'm not necessarily always willing to pay. Maybe there's something else for you, but there's always something. There's always something. Uh, the text tells us that there's always something. When Jesus says, just before this passage, to count, like, the, like there's always a cost to following Jesus, uh, there is a guy who's a teacher of the law, and he discovers how brilliant Jesus is as a teacher of the law, and he humbles himself and begs Jesus to let him go with him. And Jesus tells him, this is not going to be a glamorous life in which you get paid tons of money to come entertain people and speak to people. Um, I don't have a safe, glamorous place to lay my head at night. You sure you're up for this? When the guy who wants to go back and bury his father comes to Jesus and begs Jesus to let him go with him, he says, "Um, yeah, I don't have a safe community to always go back to. Sometimes I don't see my favorite people for a very long time. 
And then Jesus tells the disciples as they're moving through the storm, hey, the journey, the journey for the mission that I'm sending you on, it is not always gonna be smooth sailing. Sometimes you're gonna hit some rough patches. And then he says to these townspeople, guess what? Guess what? Your community, your way of life, it is not going to remain untouched. It's not going to remain untouched. But to all of them, Jesus says, it is completely and utterly worth it. The restoration is worth it. The wholeness that God wants to bring into creation is worth it. The kingdom of shalom that Jesus is establishing is totally worth it. But there's a cost, Jesus says, and the cost is safety and security and certainty. Stanley Hauerwas, he is a prolific um, American theologian and um, Bible scholar, and he's sometimes my favorite person, sometimes not my favorite person, but he, uh, <laughs> but every once in a while he says something that is just so poignant that it just like sits in my heart. And um, he says this in his commentary on Matthew. He says, it seems that the outsiders are often as unwilling as the people of Israel, um, and he might even say as Christians, to receive someone capable of ridding their lives of demons. And if we have to choose between a life we know, um, even a life possessed by demons and ruled by death on the one hand, and on the other hand, a life of certainty to which Jesus calls us, a life that may well expose us to dangers in Jesus' name, we too may ask Jesus to leave our neighborhood. Two observations um, as I close. Um, the first is um, all of us have a thing that we don't want Jesus to touch, um, it's a thing around which we draw a line or a boundary um, for the Gerasenes or the Gatherings or the Hippocenes, whichever community you want to label this as. Uh, for them, it was their pig farm, um, which was tied to their economic interests. Um, we all have that thing. The disciples all have that thing. Um, no one is immune from having that thing. The bigger question is, what is it? Um, and how do you turn that thing back over to Jesus? Um, so what is that thing that you don't want Jesus to touch? But then the second observation in this text is um, around the, the certainty, I think, that we want, that we favor, that we prefer, especially in the face of things that are uncertain, uncomfortable, um, and maybe even dangerous to us in some way. Um, I, wonder, I wonder if we actually think the risk is worth it. Um, I see this with, um, with just the way that like, God calls us into the kingdom of God, like I, and, and not just into the kingdom of God so that we can experience healing and like, brilliant insights when we open the scriptures, uh, but also when God calls us to, to help other people see the beauty that we see and experience the beauty that we see. Um, I think sometimes we settle for the certainty of a faith um, and of a movement that doesn't actually move anywhere or a movement that doesn't actually go anywhere or do anything other than make us feel better and more comfortable, um, like that show that we love to watch over and over and over again that reminds us of the simpler, less complicated time in our lives. The reality is that while there might be places that we think are too terrifying or too dangerous to go, Christ goes to the most dangerous places. He braves the most dangerous conditions and, and fights his way into the most dangerous hearts and even descends into the depths of hell themselves, all to rescue me and you from the grip of sin and evil and death. And if we are serious about following that Christ, not only do we welcome his work to bring the kingdom in our own hearts and in our own lives and in our own relationships, but we become living examples of that, proof of that, and ambassadors of that, telling people with our words and our deeds about it, but also ministers of that work 
ministers that are oh, that work in unfortunate places or uncomfortable places or in certain places and maybe even the dangerous places that God calls us to. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so incredibly grateful for the relinquishing of the safety and the security of the cosmos to come into this dangerous place called the creation that had fallen into sin and evil and death. We thank you for the greatest rescue mission ever launched, and we thank you that we get to experience the fruit of just the goodness and the truth and the beauty that you bring into our lives that is slowly infiltrating our world until Christ comes again and permanently sets things right. And Lord, we thank you that we get to be living examples of that, but also ministers of that work in your world, trusting you that in spite of the uncertainty, in spite of the lack of comfort, in spite of even maybe sometimes the danger that missionaries around the world encounter in ways that we can't even fathom here in West Michigan, Lord, we thank you that you are there, um, that you are here, and that you are constantly calling us because there's something at stake, that the kingdom is at stake, and that you make us participants in that kingdom. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web at www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.